0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for downloading episode 144. Of we got this with Mark and Hal. In case you weren't already aware, we have a live show coming up in January. It's a little ways away, but it's not too early to get your tickets. We're going to be doing a show on Sunday, January 14th as part of San Francisco Sketchfest with our friends Craigslist, another awesome podcast with your hosts, Craig Kakowski and Carla Kakowski. We're doing a double bill. Our guests will be Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher. Their guest will be none other than Busy Phillips. It's going to be an amazing show. You can get tickets right now. Go to sfsketchfest.com. Go to the ticket link. We're going to be on Sunday, January 14th. And for now, if you want to do something to support the show, we'd really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts. The ratings are great, but we need those reviews. That's how new people find the show. And also, once we hit a magic number of reviews, and we're still a ways away, but I think we can get there pretty quickly. We'll be able to get some more merch in the store. We have a great poster available right now, but there's so much more that we could offer to you, and we need those reviews to do it. So go to Apple Podcasts, give us a glowing, sterling review, tell us what you love about the show. For now, enjoy this
1: episode of We Got
0: This with Mark and Hal.
1: Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi.
0: Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance... We're here to settle, once and for all, the Flintstones or the Jetsons.
1: That's right, don't worry everyone, we got this. Podcast should have a theme song. Podcast should not have a theme song. Yes they should. No they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. Oh, Hal. What is it, Mark? You know... I love cartoons, and I want to talk about cartoons. Yep. It's just, I don't think you and I are quite experts the way we should be about cartoons. And I don't think that we could talk as intelligently as our audience deserves.
0: Now, Mark
1: Gagliardi. What?
0: Marcus James Gagliardi. Not my name. We both grew up watching tons of cartoons. Sure. We both do voiceover work now. Yeah. But we are by no means experts in the way that our guest is an expert.
1: Wait, what? Yeah, we're
0: we're in somebody's house. Oh, wait, that's what this is. That's when I take a bag off of your head. You're usually in somebody
1: else's house. Afterwards. Oh man, or I'm in a uh, storage crate on a ship bound for Shanghai. Yeah,
0: and that is a house for a rat. Our guest today <laughs> uh, is a legend, uh, legendary writer in comics and uh, in animation uh he is uh, you may know him if you listen to our bonus episode from our our best cartoon cat uh which was called the bonus episode called Talking Garfield with Mark Evanier it's Mark Evanier. Welcome, sir. Wow.
2: How did you guys get in my house, and why did you hey, have a bag on his head when he came in?
0: <laughs> well, let me take the bag off of yours, and I'll explain. Right.
2: Uh, no, no, I was doing my Murray Langston impression. Oh, there All you right. go. All right.
1: A, thank you for letting us uh, quickly bum-rush you in another episode, and right. B, thank you for agreeing to join us in your own full episode of the show. I have very little shame and low standards, so it's fine. It's Oh, good. That's the intersection
0: of our show. Uh, now, you've worked all over in animation, uh, but you've done your fair share of Hanna-Barbera work. Can you just give for for our listening audience a bit of your CV, and then I have a very specific uh, question about uh, a one piece of work and a character you created. So leave that off, and then we'll okay, talk about it. Okay, I didn't
2: it. create him, but I, I know what you mean, but I did yep. not create him. I, okay. just, I just kind of introduced him into the world. Fair enough. Um, I, my first Hanna-Barbera show was Richie Rich. Yeah. Um, I, only, I didn't, I started an animation actually working for Ruby Spears Productions, which at that time was a rival that was taking work away from Hanna-Barbera, and that's why they got bought by Hanna-Barbera. Mm-hmm. If you can't beat them, buy them. And, uh, it's the American way. Yeah. yeah. I got, uh, started working on Richie Rich, which I wound up eventually story editing for a couple of years. I did for Hanna-Barbera, I did some Scooby-Doo's. I did, um, A Yogi Bear primetime special. I did, I did the show called The Trollkins, which nobody remembers. Um, (laughs) I did uh, a bunch of, I did, actually, my very first thing I ever did for Hanna Barbera was a live action pilot, um, for a situation comedy, um, that they, after I was working for Hanna Barbera running their comic book department. Okay. And I kept trying, thought, you know, maybe I can get them to let me, write some cartoons because the Scooby-Doo TV show was mm-hmm. lifting plots from the Scooby-Doo comic books I would written. And I couldn't somehow make that transition. I couldn't connect with anybody who had the power to get me from the comic books to the shows. And then one day my agent for my TV writing uh, sold me and another writer I was working with at the time to uh, Hanna-Barbera's live action department. And I, I, I said, gee, I really want to write I'd rather write a cartoon for them. I I I grew up on Hanna-Barbera cartoons. I see Mr. Barbera in the halls all the time. I've never met him yet. Um I'd love to work on the cartoons. Why would I want to I would rather do a cartoon than this live action show. So yeah. I I so I uh, I wrote this pilot that was just a disaster. It was we all have Those shows that we, you know, I have the I have the disadvantage of having a unique name. I can't say, well, some other market, the other Mark Evanier wrote that one, right? I I envy, you know, guys who are named, you know, Fred Smith. I they can always claim it was the other Fred Smith. So
1: there's a lot of Alan Smithies that have been writing things for years. Yeah, Yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah. Uh. So um, uh, the problem was that since I first met Joe Barbera, writing this show he thought I was a live action writer and Joe was going through this phase of, well, you know, live action writers can't write animation. They'd go back and forth on this at different times at Hanna-Barbera. They would, at point, sometimes they'd say, you know, well, we need to have guys who understand cartoons and, who and maybe, you know, have, have a better visual sense. So that's not live action guys. And then all of a sudden the networks would say, you know, why don't you get writers like those prime time guys? And suddenly they go, okay, let's hire prime time writers. And, and you know the batting average was about the same either way. Mm-hmm. Some of the guys were good, and some of them weren't. Um, so, but I was unfortunately this was a period when they when they being a live action writer was the surest way not to get work in <laughs> cartoons. So wow. I got hired by Ruby Spears first, and then one day I did so many shows for Ruby Spears that Joe Barbera phoned me. And said, "Why didn't you tell me you can write cartoons?" And I said, "I only told you 343 times."
1: <laughs> it seems like you got into actually writing cartoons for television the way that someone whose watch says 5:44 and they need to set it for 5:48, so they do it counterclockwise. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, it, yeah. I had thought. <laughs> see, I my plan was to go from writing comic books to writing TV shows based on comics, like like Hanna Barbera cartoon mm-hmm. shows, and then segue to live action. And I did it backwards. I did. I did the comic books first, and then I started writing live action shows. I was writing sitcoms and primetime shows and,
1: and, um. Some pretty epic, legendary shows well, you have, uh, you've created or no, been a part of. I, I didn't of, or... create very many TVs. I didn't create a lot of TV stuff. The, I just,
2: I got hired on like Welcome Back Cotter, and I got hired on Love Boat and a bunch of shows. I had a partner, and we, and he was a much better seller of our talents than I could have been on my own. And, um, he's the one who actually got us the job writing the, uh, the live action, uh the first live action we did. Actually, we did two live action shows for Hanna-Barbera. We did another thing before the beach show. Uh I forgot that one. Uh So I every time I met Joe Barbera, I thought I was a live action writer. I wrote, I wrote, uh, I think the first thing I wrote for Hanna-Barbera, I wrote a, one or two Richie Riches, that I wrote. You're going to ask me about Scrappy Doo.
0: Yeah, let's talk about Scrappy Doo. Yeah. Okay. You're, now you're you did not create Scrappy Doo. Let's scrappy-doo. set the record straight right now. No, I did not create Scrappy Doo. I wrote the pilot that
2: introduced him. I wrote the episode that introduced him. And uh, what happened was that uh, you know you go through in this business, you go through periods when the, the network likes you. You also go to the, mm-hmm. the network says, don't get that guy. Don't hire him. I was in a period when the people at ABC in, in Saturday morning liked me, and I'd written a lot of things for them. I wrote a lot of the ABC weekend specials. I wrote some pilots. I wrote some uh, – I, they, they I was one of their favorite writers for about 12 minutes, and uh, they were going to cancel Scooby-Doo. It had been on for 800 years, and <laughs> it was getting very stale. And at this point in the existence of, of Sco- the Scooby-Doo show, here was how you sold the script for Scooby-Doo. You'd go to the producer or the story editor and you'd say, um, how about a fake ghost that looks like a, uh, a ping-pong champion who's haunting the <laughs> ping-pong tournament? <laughs> and, and the, and the, the story editor-producer would haul out this list of all the episodes they'd done and go, ping-pong tournament, ping-pong tournament. Oh. <laughs> We did it in season three and we did it in season five and I've got one in development now. But if you come up, could come up with an idea that hadn't been done, you had a sale. Everything else they could figure out. I mean, if you, if you had a unique premise for here's the ghost, here's why it's fake, here's why someone's pulling the hoax, everything else could fall, could, could be configured. And the show had gotten so stale that CB, the ABC rather had decided to drop it and pick up a show from Ruby Spears, the pilot for which I'd written For Ruby Spears. And then Joe Barbera phones me, and he says, I need you to write this pilot for Scrappy-Doo. So, you know, I grew up on Hanna-Barbera cartoons. There's some things I'm really good at, but saying no to Joe Barbera was not one of them. (laughs) And he calls me in, and he shows me these sketches for Scrappy. They've got – and they've written – 15 scripts, different staff writers. I was not a staff writer at the time. I was just a freelancer. But staff guys had all written these outlines and scripts and plots and everything, some whole scripts, and they never didn't like any of them. And they weren't going to pick up Scooby-Doo for another season without some new element in it. Mm -hmm. And they weren't going to buy the show with Scrappy-Doo until they had a script that they thought really worked and showed the character off how he functions. And I was charged with writing that script. And so I... Figured out how he functioned and I wrote the script and they bought it, which displeased Joe Ruby over Ruby Spears because the show I was doing for him didn't sell. They picked up Scooby-Doo instead. Yeah. But that's what happens
1: occasionally. And Were you – was now the the phrase puppy power.
2: Yeah. So the phrase puppy power was invented by a man named Frank Welker who was the voice of Fred. Oh, sure. Oh, right. Of course. And, I didn't realize and, and, that he – he was the voice of Scrappy for about uh, one day. They kept changing who Scrappy's voice was. The The network the network wasn't happy with the first one voice. They replaced him. They it was thorough. The second voice. A little too deep. No, yeah. no. <laughs> Actually, the very first one was going to be Don Messick. Mm-hmm. And they decided that that wasn't quite the right voice. So F- Frank Welker was picked. And he had live Puppy Power in his audition. And Joe Barbera, remembering how Alan Reed had once ad lib yabba yabba-dabba-doo, said, Oh, this is the same gold. I didn't think it was quite the same gold, but. <laughs> and, uh, then they went through. Now, I don't, I can't give these in order exactly, but at one point, Marilyn Schreffler was the voice of Scooby-Doo. At one point, Dawes Butler was the voice of Scooby-Doo. Uh, I'm talking about Scrappy now. Marilyn mm-hmm. uh, Schreffler. At one point, it was going to be Paul Winchell. Uh, at one point, it was going to be, I, Forget all the people we went through. It was just like I'd go in every day and I'd say, who's the voice of Scrappy now? John Gielgud, huh? Okay, thank you. Oh, man.
1: (laughs) I would love the puppy power. (laughs) So
2: um, they finally settled. I I suggest – at one point Dick Beals was going to be there. If you know who Dick Beals was, he was going to be the voice of of Scrappy. And then they came – and they were so desperate they came to me and asked me for my idea uh, one of the secrets of Hanna-Barbera, I will let you in on, was he was the best salesman you ever saw. If Joe Barbera had been a used car dealer, we'd all have a 10-year-old Chevy. I mean, we'd be everybody. <laughs> he could, this man could sell anything. And he was charming and funny and witty. Anyway, they, ABC bought the show. Uh, they, they picked up Scooby for another season with Scrappy as a new element. And Lenny Weinrib wound up being the voice of the character for the first season. And Lenny, who was a wonderfully talented, funny man, he was the voice of H.R. Puff and stuff, and he mm-hmm. was the voice of lots of Hanna Barbera characters at the time, and and one of those actors who just worked every minute of the day in front of a microphone. Lenny started was having some problems in his life at the time. He, he actually just quit the business a couple of years later and moved to Chile, um out of nowhere. His agent he called, didn't have his, connections his, to his, Chile. It was no, like his, just threw no, a dartboard, a, darted his, a map. No, what happened was he was. um It's kind of complicated. Uh, we're getting way off the subject here but that's okay we'll we'll eventually talk about Lenny's Lenny's wife was from Chile oh okay and she said you know he, he was going through a lot of stress and she said you know with your money we could go to live on top of a mountain in a mansion with servants in Chile for the rest of your life you know we you, you can buy
1: a and a light bulb went off he, above his head if, yeah. you,
2: if you sold your house over here in Hancock Park area, area mm-hmm. you could buy a house six times the size of it in Chile and have servants and and Lenny said let's do it and he disappeared one day he just his agent phoned me and said have you heard from Lenny i don't i can't reach him <laughs> scrappy <laughs> doo flew yeah. the yeah. coop to wow. chile to
1: live in a mansion
2: yeah. that's but, where he's hiding but, out well, that and is actually, a scoop well actually one of the things that upset him was losing the role of scrappy doo uh
0: uh-huh. he the second
2: season he had had a problem with uh, a man named Gordon Hunt was directing the voices in the show, and Gordon was a decent, lovely man. Just passed away about a year, less than a year ago. Great director, and it was one of the. If you had a fight with Gordon Hunt, you were in the wrong, just because he was so good at what he did <laughs> and so decent and such. And Lenny kept having fights with him. And when it, and they, the second season of, of Scooby with Scrappy came up, uh, Lenny said, "I won't work with Gordon Hunt," and Gordon Hunt said, "I won't work with Lenny." And they went to Lenny and said, well, who do you want to have direct the shows? And he said, how about Mark Evanier? And I said, "And they Bill Hanna called me and said, would you like to direct the voices on Scooby-Doo? And I said, well, I don't want to step on Gordon Hunt's toes. And he said, oh, Gordon would like you to do it. I said, well, I want to hear that from him. So he said, be my guest. I went down to Gordon's office and I said, "Uh, how would you feel if I were to direct the Scooby-Doo shows? He said, please, please, I'll give you money. Please take take it away from me. I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) So for about two days, I was going to direct it. Until until someone at Hanna Barbera Accounting realized that they would have to pay me and they couldn't deduct that money from Gordon Hunt's contract, right? And they went, okay, let's replace Lenny instead, and and Don Messick, the first choice, became Scrappy Doo. Wow,
0: at that. You know, so well, well um, you you talked about about Joe Barbera being able to sell anything, yeah. And so today we're here to speak to you about
1: maybe two of his most famous sales of all for- time. It's, you're Hold doing on a second. Now Mark, I'm going to do it. I have a couple of – look, I, while we've got you here, we'll talk about – I just
0: want to point out how crazy this is. <laughs> Mr. Evan – I'm just going to call you Evanier. I'm going to call him Mark if that's all right with you. Uh, Mr. Evanier. Mr. Great. Evanier. Yes. No. Captain Evanier. Yes. Uh, thank you for your service. But yes. I'm always the one who stops him from moving the show forward. <laughs> all right. I'm, gonna, I'm having the vapors right now. Yeah. I can't wait to hear what I you know. have to say.
1: I just have two. I have because I know you are a legend in the cartoon no, world. No, and No, I'm air. not a legend. Two guys, every, two guys who work every, in the game. It, you're a
2: Everybody on every podcast is a legend. Have
0: you ever heard a podcast where someone had a guest who didn't say we have a legend? Here"? Oh yeah, we've had yeah. we've had some guests on our show who are simply our friends. Yeah, oh. my dad's been on like three times. <laughs> Believe me, your, your legendary father, his my is legendary Bill dad. He's only legendary
2: because he. I balk at this because I have friends who have become convinced they're legends because they've been told this so often by people trying to inflate the importance of the guests they have to make them sound, you know, more important. No, you,
0: listen, I was a huge Garfield fan. Just getting to, talk to you for five minutes is You oh. want to talk about Garfield? I wanted, well, I, wanted to, I wanted
1: to ask for if you had any crazy Sid and Marty stories. I have.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, Give me six more podcasts. We can do that. (laughs) Because every time I I, watch a Sid and Marty Croft
1: show, it looks like they're having the most fun of any set of any show I've ever seen. For our listeners who don't know, Sid and Marty Croft uh, created basically live action cartoons. Yeah. Their own, these whimsical, magical worlds on sound stages that all looked uh, somewhat similar to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory in the original motion picture. Um, can you tell us a little about, a little bit about working at Sid and Marty oh, Cross?
2: Well, Sid and Marty Cross, I just saw, uh, Sid and Marty at the Comic Con. I, I haven't seen them for a couple of years and I ran into them we hugged and everything and I just, I just, it was so great. They, they were great guys to work with. You, you did not work for Sid and Marty. You got it, you got adopted into the family. I love that. And, wow. And I worked for them on and off for, well, Pretty much ten years continuously, and then a lot of other projects after that. And Marty, oh, I got a new project. Come on, I see me, man. I got a new show for you to do. Um, they were great, and they were and and there's you want to you can't apply the word legendary to someone like me when there's a Sid Marty Croft in the world. I mean, it's just it, the, what are you going to say? Say how are you going to describe them in a way that that doesn't bring them down to my level? <laughs> you know what? You're right.
1: How okay. can we get Sid and Marty Croft in uh, here yeah, to these? Let me just ask Evan. They here.
2: they um. They had this wonderful family of people and they uh, – Sid Croft is one of the most creative people in the world. He would come up with these ideas that no one else would have thought of.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've seen the shows. And
2: and some of them – I mean and Sid would be the first one to say this. Some of them were stupid, ridiculous ideas. But if Sid came up with 10 ideas, someplace in there, there'd be one that nobody else in the world would ever have come up with and – Marty, he said, Sid would walk in and this is not a real world example. He comes and says, what if we filled the entire stage with French vanilla ice cream? And Marty would say, do you know what that's going to cost? Do you have any idea what we're going to do? How, wait, wait a minute now. How about if it's just regular vanilla? Okay. And, <laughs> and, uh, and they just, they had this company that would make, they had a, Puppet factory, and they had a comp- and they and a division that essentially would build anything uh uh props for other shows you know they built the banana splits costumes that makes sense uh, and yeah. they um and they they would build things for las vegas shows they would they would make sets and and art direct things uh for the oddest things uh, and uh I worked for them for a number of variety shows starring people who didn't speak English very well. <laughs> and I worked for them on, uh, shows with puppets. I worked on, uh, I actually worked, even worked puppets for them.
1: It, well, this was, eight. you, are you you're talking about the, the women from Japan. The, yeah, the pink
2: lady. The before, pink lady. Before that, I did a show with the Bay City Rollers for them. And the, they, spoke, <laughs> yes! they spoke, they spoke, they spoke, they spoke English, but not that much better. Um, they were s- lovely guys. They're uh, from Australia. Yeah. They were from, they were Scotland. 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 they, Scotland.
1: they speak oh, English God. in Scotland?
2: Yeah, but mm. when they had these thick accents. What, what happened was we had this, uh, when we started meeting with, when, when the rollers came over, uh, and we had to meet with them. Uh, it was – and I can't do the accent. One of the writers used to tell the story about – he would talk to these – you guys got to look forward to doing the show. And then they'd say something in English but with such a thick brogue, you couldn't figure out what they were saying.
0: <laughs> it's that accent that sounds like, we assault the hell. Oh, oh, they yes, oh, exactly. said right. oh, oh, So yeah. we brought in this wonderful dialogue coach,
2: a man named Jonathan Lucas, who was like a Henry Higgins type. He was a guy who could teach anyone. And after three weeks, we couldn't understand Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> the rollers had not yeah. changed. At the they start, are the rollers, and, man. And, and at that point, the rollers group was kind of breaking up and the guys were all suing each other. <laughs> so that didn't so that's help with the discord. On top of that – Uh, we stashed them away at a house in Laurel Canyon just to live, they were gonna live some. Marty Croft owned an extra house somehow and he put them there. It was a house he was trying to sell, but he put the rollers in there and it was a secret where they were because at the studio, the gates were covered around with 15 year old girls dying to meet the rollers. And (laughs) when I would drive in to the lot each day, these women would come up to my car, going, "Can you get us on the set? Can you get, the, can you get Woody to sign my 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 chest? Can you get whatever it was?" And then when I left, they would start following me in case I was going to the rollers house. It was, it was literally like you said, "Hard days night." I was, it was living that experience for a
1: Unbelievable. while. Unbelievable! Wow! And the Laurel Canyon version of well, a hard days night. Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: and, uh, and and then they and then they found the house. I'd go over to the rollers house, <laughs> and there are these fourteen or fifteen year old girls. Who are creeping into the neighbor's yard to peek into the, oh the yard where the rollers are, and it was a very bizarre mm. experience.
1: American teenagers love a Scotsman. Well, yeah, yeah,
2: yes, and uh, so so we had a, but every show with the cross was was amazing yeah. that way because they knew everybody in the show business, and uh, we, I did a show with them one time. It was a, a Bobby Vinton primetime special, which was a pilot. And what happened was that the um, – they sold to CBS the idea of doing a variety show which would have the appeal of the movie Grease, mm-hmm. right. which was very hot at the sure. time. And so we, it was basically a 50s-themed variety show and we got on it. Several of the cast members of the movie Grease were on it, including Eve Arden and um, um, uh, Susan Buckner who played the petty Simcox, the super-body president, and Stockard Channing and and so on. And then – we got a lot of 50 stars. We had like, um, uh, Fabian, and of course, Bobby Vinton was the star. And oh, and then we were gonna, we, we booked, they booked Sid Caesar, who was, of course, in the movie Grease, and then oh, he yeah. canceled out on us. At the last minute, they brought in Gail Gordon, who, you know, for, for a guy reared on sitcoms, mm-hmm. working with Eve Arden and Gail Gordon was amazing. <laughs> and Eve Arden had all these great stories about working with the Marx brothers and at the circus. Wow. And, and Gail Gordon had, All these great stories about sitcoms he'd done. And he even had some stories about Desi Arnaz that did not involve hookers. Hey. So that's good. (laughs) So they
0: do exist. The Hollywood legend is true. Yes. So, (laughs) so I'm,
2: you know, and it, it's, it, it, what, what's interesting is that you write stuff and all of a sudden you're doing it. You you know, you would write a sketch and they build the set. Um, when we were doing Pink Lady, I got punchy. I was working 24-7 around the clock. I had no sleep. Seven days a week, I was exhausted. I I got so – I was just staggering into to work each day because it was so much work. And one day, I suddenly turned to the other writers. uh, Oh, they would come to me and they'd say, we need to build the sets for the next episode. Now, we have to start building them now. And I said, we don't know what the guest stars are next episode. And they'd say, too bad. Tell us what sets to build anyway for the sketches. So I had to – Commission the scat ske- the, the sets,
1: and then we had to write bits that fit the sets. So would you just think of interesting locations? Yes. You go, yeah. oh, great. Yeah. Uh, an Old West saloon yeah. and a barbershop. Yeah. That's right.
2: Yep. Yeah. That's exactly how it works. Doctor's right.
1: office at right. a Roman yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. courtyard. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's so. fun to have constraints yeah. like that. So though,
2: I, I, I went into the other writers. I was the head writer and I walked, I walked to the other writers one day and I said, you know, whatever we do, they build, whatever we offer, say they need, they, I said, we could get an elephant. You, would you guys like oh, an elephant? Man. So I called in and they said, okay, what, I said, watch this. And I called in the associate producer, a guy named Pat, and I said, uh, Pat, for the show next week, we need an elephant. And he said, what kind of elephant? I said, big elephant, biggest one you could get. What and kind he of goes elephant? out, he goes out, and then he comes back a few minutes later and he says, tusks. And I said, <laughs> and I said, tusks are optional. And he said, okay, fine. So oh, he, man. he, he goes out and he comes back in a little while later. And he says, Okay, I, uh, I got the, I got an elephant for us, but he, the, uh, his trainer wants to see a script. And I said, <laughs> wait a minute. Who, we, who is we, this diva elephant? We, we've got, we've got Sid Caesar guesting next week. Sid didn't want to see a script. Why does the elephant have to, see it? <laughs> Well, it's not the elephant's trainer. It's his manager. And I said, wait a minute. The elephant has a manager and a trainer. I don't even—I don't even have a manager. <laughs>
0: you know what it is—the last elephant that guy had managed was in Cleopatra, and it just yeah. Yeah. just, just torpedoed his so, career.
2: So the other writers, you know, Pat went okay, and the other guys looked at me and they said, "Wow, you just ordered an elephant." <laughs> 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 and I said, "Yeah, I guess I did." We got to find a s- sketch for him, and we we stuck the elephant in a sketch, and at just the perfect moment, if I had indicated this, the elephant decided to unleash a lot of elephant. Defecation all over the set, and it was it was perfectly timed. I mean, the elephant had, it was a, really a trooper. <laughs> he knew the right moment to, to let it go. But you know, you're on the set. You're casting dancers and singers, and we have guest stars coming in, and they're making costumes. and It felt like show business.
1: Yeah, yeah. show. that's one of those. There's that like image of show business where it's a back lot and you see an elephant and a cowboy and three showgirls and an astronaut. You're like yep. that's and then two guys walking past with a backdrop painted like an exotic location. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it.
0: It was like that. Have I ever told you my Hollywood story where I knew I was in Hollywood? No. Uh, in 2000, I did extra work on Spider-Man on the first uh, the Sony Spider-Man the Man McGuire. I was mm-hmm. in the wrestling scenes in the crowd. And I went to use the restroom, which is outside of the soundstage, like a, a restroom that that was shared with the soundstage next door. Uh, next door was Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. So I stood at the urinal and then all of a sudden there were two <laughs> giant gorillas in their full battle armor using mm-hmm. the urinal next to
1: me. How did you sneak a peek? I Listen, I'm a gentleman.
0: <laughs> so I would never tell you if I saw it or not. But I definitely – when I saw them in their flip phones making phone calls – Th- that there you was go. You've arrived. Most, that was the most Hollywood. Um, I was like, oh, I'm finally in town. Mm-hmm. But all right, I'm going to tie it back yes. now. You ready?
1: We, yeah, tie it back. We
0: just talked about an elephant. And of course, the elephant is descended from the woolly mammoth, who got a lot of work as a dishwasher on oh, the Flintstones yeah. and then was largely extinct, super extinct. Uh, by time the Jetsons appeared, and that is what we're going to discuss All today. Right. Yes, the, the, the,
1: also we both love Garfield, yes, friends. The t- oh, of course.
0: We okay, now Garfield, we'll talk about. I got Jack Kirby questions, but Great. we're going to stay. All we're right. going to. We're going to. We're going to. We got to stay on task yes. here. Harrison we- Wool has asked this question. Hi, us, Harrison, and we've been very patient waiting yeah. to know. <laughs> it's something people debate: mm-hmm. is w- which is better, Flintstones uh, or the Jetsons? And they're they're somewhat contemporaries. Of course, the mm-hmm. first uh primetime animated series was the flintstones came out in 1960 and now uh, we're just about a month away from the jetsons celebrating their 55th anniversary that's right 62 in, in they came out um they're both sort of nuclear families and they're both based on really well-known source material. So the Flintstones of course are based on the Honeymooners. Mm-hmm. Now the the Jetsons I've seen two different things. One is Make Room for Daddy, the other is Blondie.
1: No, it's actually the life of Riley and Blondie put together. Okay. There you go. There we go. Officially canon That's answered. It. Yes. So, so
0: you you're the right age to to be a fan of both before yeah. you were working in animation. Before so- I was yes, I was I, I was ten.
2: I mean, for these when, when the Jetsons went on the air.
0: Were you drawn more as a child to the Jetsons or the Flintstones? Because you were a little bit too young for the Flintstones, or you were no, you're about no, the right I, age no, there was, too. No, I was.
2: I was nine when the, Flint, the Flintstones went on in 1960. I was eight. Yes. I was eight. Okay. Uh, I loved the Flintstones when it came on. I liked the Jetsons better. Um, and I I can't really tell you why, other than I think that by the time the and the Jetsons came on. I'd had two seasons of the Flintstones, and those were long seasons. Those were like thirty episode seasons. Mm-hmm. And I thought the Flintstones was getting a little stale, a little okay. bit stale. And and I, I really I love the first three seasons of the Flintstones. I can't really watch a lot of the fourth or so on. It just it started getting very repetitive to me mm-hmm. and very formula. Just
1: dinosaurs saying it's a living. Yeah, yeah. It,
2: it, but it was also um there's a you know it's like if you if you look at the honeymooners mm-hmm. which was obviously you know a major source material there what you've got there if you think about it is a guy story about a guy who opens his big mouth and endangers his family income every week and lies to people and threatens to punch his wife out it's a very yeah. intolerable situation and the only reason the honeymoon I always thought the only reason the honeymooners worked Well, was because of Art Carney, because he was such a lovable guy. If he was Mm -hmm. Ralph Crabden's buddy, you figure Ralph can't be that bad. Right. In the case of the Flintstones, here's a guy, Fred, who's got a making a decent living at the rock quarry, and he's just you get frustrated. I get the same frustrated sometimes watching I Love Lucy episodes. Like, Lucy, why did you cause so much trouble for the people you ostensibly love this week? Why, you know, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> oh, you've destroyed Rick, Ricky's career again by trying to get yourself on TV or something. Um, I just have a little low tolerance for shows that are, that are allowed, uh, kind of about, um, people who ostensibly love each other who do bad things to each other.
0: Right. Do, yeah. do, do you think, though, the Flintstones, obviously based on the Honeymooners, but coming out a little bit later, is in that post-war, like, yeah. it's all just about getting ahead. So they, they, they certainly laid back off of I, – I don't remember Fred Flintstone ever threatening to wallop his wife. Yeah. No, no. Um, he, 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 th- that anger was more directed towards Barney than anybody yes, else. Where yeah. he would-
2: I, just, I just got a little tired of the Flintstones. And the, when the Jetsons came along, first of all, it was in color. Mm-hmm. I, we had, we had a black and white set at the time, but the Jetsons was the first series broadcast in color on ABC. And down the street from us, a couple of doors was a little old lady named Mrs. Hollingsworth who had a color TV. And on Sundays, I would go down and she'd let me watch the Jetsons in color. And, <laughs> and I sat there with my little drawing pad because I, I wanted to learn how to draw all the Hanna-Barbera characters. And I, I drew them very well for age 10. Right. And I draw them exactly the same way now.
1: <laughs> uh, After years of being side-by-side I, I draw them, with I, Hannah and Barbera. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, I, I, I when I worked for the Hannah-Barbera co- comic book division, I ran it. I would do – I occasionally would do artwork because I was the editor and nobody could stop me. But but I didn't draw them that well. Uh, so uh, – but I just thought that Jetsons was a fresher, funnier show. I liked the characters more. Um, I just – I, now, of course, the thing is, the Jetsons only was one season then, mm-hmm. so it didn't stick around long enough to get stale. The Flintstones, I got, I think, got tired very quickly. The Jetsons, had it not been canceled for one season, might have gotten stale right. just as fast, but that didn't happen for me. It is,
0: I, it is kind of a tick in, in the favor of the Jetsons. The, mm-hmm. the, Thinking that it was only one season, while, what was it, six seasons that, that the Flintstones yeah. ran, and they got to the point where they, yeah. I think it was 65, they introduced yeah. Harvey Corman as the Great Gazoo, so they mm-hmm. kind of expanded. It had, there was much more world building in the Flintstones. You could probably name more right. characters, not counting like, Rock Hud Rock or Anne Marg Rock or all the celebrities they brought right. in. but. The Jetsons has persevered over time. It, it's, it's still syndicated. People still watched it. It came back yeah. in, in what, 19, the late 80s? 87,
1: I think.
2: Something like that. I, I was actually going to be the first sto- uh, story, editor of the new Jetsons. Uh, Mr. Barbera called me one day and said, we're reviving the Jetsons. We're going to do, at that point, they were going to do 26 new ones. I think it later expanded the number. And, uh, and I thought, oh, my goodness, here's my chance to do The Jetsons. I just – I love that idea. And then they talked about how low the budget would be, including the budget for me. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I, I liked it a little less at that ah, point. There you go. And then they put me with a producer who was in-house at that time who talked about modernizing the show. And I thought, how are you going to modernize a show set in the future?
1: Yeah, what? Because <laughs> that's that's another thing that I think The Jetsons has really going for it mm-hmm. is its vision of the future is cool is kind of a permanently cool vision of what the future looks like. It's that great 1950s, mm-hmm. 1960s, a lot
0: of circle, like mm-hmm. almost a, like, what It's would the like future, the original Tomorrowland. Yes, if everything and, was still mid-century, yeah, yeah. if it was like a Thomas Kern yeah. design. Right. Or and and, and, and don't
2: you just love movies that show you the futuristic world of the year 2002. Oh, I love it. Like yes. Sure. <laughs> and you going, wait a minute. I was promised flying cars. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I was exactly. promised build
1: buildings on stilts. Also, they, there's a lot of futuristic stuff where – I guess it's assumed that every building has been torn down mm-hmm. where there uh, – no, I mean we live in a time now where there are still castles all over Europe and the Empire State Building is still there and the Hollywood Bowl. You know what I mean? wasn't everything fl- – there's always the sense
0: of like there was a geostorm before the world of the Jetsons. <laughs> everything got wiped out. They like, well, you know – frick it. We'll just build a whole city in the sky where everything floats and we'll yeah. use treadmills to get everywhere. Yeah. Was it, am I remembering that? No, I don't no, think no, everybody that, ever touched the earth on the Jetsons.
2: Uh, once in a while, I think. But anyway, it just I just thought it was a fresher show. When, 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 when they wanted to bring it back, um, I had these meetings. Ultimately, they wound up doing it fairly faithful mm-hmm. to the original because they decided they wanted to be able to integrate the original episodes seamlessly. and And there actually are a few... Of the new ones, it's hard to tell whether they're new or old mm-hmm. because they did finally get George O'Hanlon um, to do the voice, They, which is partly because I told them he was alive. They didn't know this. Wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, wow. But uh, Hanna-Barbera was a great place to work as long as you remembered that at times you had to say no. And I got mm-hmm. pretty good at turning down shows that were really problematic I was very fortunate. I there's a couple of shows that I was offered and I, I just said, This is going to be a disaster because there was always one show at, at any given time that was an absolute nightmare. It had producer of the week on it, and they kept firing and revamping people and they were out, and it was behind schedule and Bill you'd see Bill Hannah running through the halls screaming about how the show was was not coming out well. And I didn't want to be on one of those shows.
0: Let me let me ask you this. So when they when they revived the the Jetsons in in 85 it had been off the air for 23 years in first run. Yeah. Why bring it back then? Had the syndication done so well that they were like, well there's more to be made here because that was really Rosie the the maid became more prominent in that series and so the Jetsons I remember was a mix of the original run and and these shows, but it just seems odd to think that that's the one that they would bring well, back here, here's your answer which is that during the period I was at Hanna-Barbera which was roughly seven,
2: well I was in the comic book division starting about 76 and then the cartoons and the TV shows I started doing about 1980 and then I was there in, through much of the 80s um, it was uh boss of the week, Joe and Bill were always there but the studio kept being sold or transferred to different divisions, one week mm-hmm. it was Taft broadcasting, one week it was you know, another company had it for a while. I can't remember all the names. And they kept having different people uh running the studio and everybody who came in had a new vision. And I suspect that, you know, next one guy comes in and says, Oh, we gotta bring back Kong Kong Fui. And the next guy comes in and says, We've got to do bring back rough and ready. And they just everybody every idea was being thrown out there. Uh they would do an awful lot of development and, and most of the writers and artists in the division I was in sat around all day doing premises and concepts for new shows and they did everything there was probably a redevelopment of every old Hanna barbera idea and some of them made the cut because somebody was willing to come in and and buy the show in the case of the jetsons uh, i think somebody um in the merchandising division noticed how strong the merchandising still was and that was a driving force and then somebody said look it's rerun real well and we've got the but it's considering we've only got the twenty six shows or whatever the number was, and think if we had you know uh sixty five of them uh, what it would be worth and that seemed like a very good investment uh to you know if they rather than do a new show uh, try to get to sixty five let's start with these twenty six we've got or twenty eight whatever they were and so but every idea was was there was a – the guy – I shared an office with a guy who was doing a doing a show called Augie Doggie Private Nose. It was Augie Doggy Augie and Doggie Daddy? A, no, it was just Augie oh, Doggy, Doggy in a detective coat going around doing like film noir stories. And you think, <laughs> why Augie – how does Augie Doggie connect with film noir detective stories? And, and you went around and there was every single idea. Right. Uh, now, you were talking earlier about Joe Barbera. Selling stuff. Yes. Okay. I'll tell you the story here, which which this sounds like something somebody made up, but it's it's true. There was um, – Hanna-Barbera at the time, uh, one of the key people in the history of Hanna-Barbera was a man named Cy Fisher, who was an agent. And the Cy Fisher agency represented Hanna-Barbera. And the way Joe Barbera sold shows uh, frequently was that he and Cy would go together to a meeting at the network or some, or some syndication company or whatever it was, and Joe would pitch – And Joe was a wonderful pitcher, and he had the ability to change pitches in midstream. If he was pitching you a Western, say he's pitching you for a Western show, and you're kind of scowling like, this isn't something we want. He he would say, now, by west," he said, now, this is a great old Western. Of course, what the big thing is that Western is only a small part of this. Actually, it's set in the Stone Age, and the show actually has dinosaurs, and he would effortlessly, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't catch him segueing. It's like a good politician who you ask about, you know, one thing and he gets you to Bolivia, something. Yeah. So Joe would, and he, and he, and Sai would sit on the couch. I was in a couple of these meetings and Joe would be entrancing everybody with how funny he was and c- clever and charming. And Cy would be laughing hysterically at everything Joe said. And then when Joe, when Joe finished, I, they may have had a signal to this. I'm not sure. Cy would turn to the buyer and say, well, what do you think? And if the buyer said, this sounds good. Sai would go, look at his watch. Go, oh, my God, we got another meeting we got to get to. Okay, thanks. We'll close the deal tomorrow. Once you get the answer you want, get out of the room.
0: Yep. Before they go. have a
2: chance to reconsider. So Joe is in one day pitching idea A, and it's not going over, so he turns it into idea A1, and then he turns pitches idea B, and he pitches idea C, and then he he says, you know, we could link idea C and A. A lot of Hanna-Barbera shows, as you saw them on the air, were a case of, Joe put two pitches together in the room. Do you have examples? Uh, Casper and the Space Angels. Here's an idea called the Space Angels. Here's an idea called Casper. Let's do Casper and the Space Angels. What do they have to do with each other? I don't know. But Joe sold it. Um, there, a lot of them were like, let's
1: make a movie with the Flintstones and the Jetsons. Yeah.
2: Let's, let's take, let's take, uh, let's take this character out of this show and put him in this show. They would do that all the time. They mix and match. Joe was brilliant at this.
1: So well, that's why I feel like that yeah. became their like the Hanna Barbera yeah. collection of yeah. characters became a team, yeah. almost.
2: Yeah, and eventually you'd do something like Laugh on Limits, which had like mm-hmm. not, most of the minute. Yeah. So Joe is pitching this one day, and finally the guy from the network says, "That's a, we love this idea. We we, we want to do this." And Sy says, "Oh, look at the time. Thank you. We'll be out." And he goes down the hall. And he, Sai turns to Joe and says, Congratulations. He has sold another show. And Joe said, Which one did they buy? And Sai said, I thought you knew. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Joe says, You want to go back? And no, no, we don't go back. We close the deal for the show. We, they sign the contract and then we go back and find out what it is. So now they go off back to the office. And the next day, Sai gets a call from the network guy who says, Listen, um, We're going to honor the commitment we made to you guys yesterday, but we're not sure which one we said yes to. So Joe Barbera had achieved something amazing. He'd actually sold nothing. He'd gotten a network commitment for
1: nothing. (laughs) He didn't know, the agent didn't know, know. and the network didn't know. So they made
2: this deal, which essentially said Hanna-Barbera will do two primetime specials for NBC (laughs) based on the concept of blank to be named later. Wow! And then they figured out of all the ideas he talked about, which ones they were going to do, and that wound up being two primetime specials, which you will, everybody listening to this will remember vaguely. They were superhero roasts. They were live action oh, shows. Yeah. Oh yeah! One of them had Ed McMahon in it, wow. and they were people. Adam West, I think, was in one. Yeah. Of them, and they had all these superhero roasts. Those came out of that. Wow! Uh, and that idea actually had been submitted to Hanna Barbera by Sheldon Moldoff, the guy who ghosted Batman for years for Bob Kane. He had met the people from and he'd written up some ideas and and Joe had sold Shelly Moldoff's idea without realizing it was Shelly Moldoff's uh, and when Shelly pointed uh, this out, they went, oh, we're sorry, Shelly, yeah, and here's some money. Uh, <laughs> he not only sold nothing, he then took the commitment and used it on a show he didn't own. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. But, but, although they made good on it, everybody was happy. So... That's what was one of the interesting things about Hanna Barbera. And then what would happen the next thing is they and they sold the cartoon show is you get I c I'd get a call and Bill Hanna would say, We want you to store it at this show, or Joe would call me, and I'd say, Well, tell me about it, and they say, well, We don't know we're not quite sure yet what it is exactly, but it'll be something like this. <laughs> and by the way, uh it's already eight weeks late.
1: <laughs> Great. So Send me some pictures. Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh and, uh, and I worked for Hannah Barbera for a while until I finally, I reached the stage where I couldn't argue with Joe Barbera anymore. I just felt mm-hmm. bad arguing because he was Joe Barbera. Right. It's hard to argue with a man whose name is on the building. And, and I liked him. I liked him tremendously, even though I knew he was, um, you know, he, he was producing a lot of shows that, that he, that he could have done better with. Uh, the, you had here two guys, Hannah Barbera, who were depression era kids and, and this is true of a lot of people. You, you mentioned Jack Kirby. This is true of Jack Kirby. Those of us who worked alongside those people of that generation sometimes didn't realize the importance of always working, of always having jobs for people. Right. Bill Hanna came into my office one night when I was doing Richie Rich and he, Bill had had a couple of drinks and he was, uh, he was, and Bill Hanna, you know, was a, a man who had more money than any, all of us in this room will ever see in our lives. And he was still working. He was the first one in the morning. He was the last one to leave at night. Um He walked around the office in shirt sleeves. Insisted everybody call him Bill. And he was he was the kind of guy. He was like I don't know if he was in his late seventies at that point. And if he saw someone carrying boxes down the hall, he'd pick up a box and, and help carry it.
0: Right. Uh, he was because yeah. it can always go away. Yeah. Because you're if you come from that depression, depression yeah, yeah, You know, so, but to but, come but, from but, nothing. But yeah.
2: I said to him this one night. I it's one of those I wish I had a tape recorder moments. Uh I said. They had done something on Richie Rich that I didn't like, uh, about moving the show. The animation was being done by a cheaper company. And it was ultimately a case of we've got to keep our people working. The alternative to doing what I thought they'd done, felt they'd done to the show would have been to lay off a whole division. And these guys wouldn't have money. They wouldn't have, you know, they these, these are people with families and we can't, we can't pay them for not working. So we're going to shift this show to that unit. Because they had, their, the work that they were originally had to do was delayed. So all of a sudden my show has got, getting worse animation. But the alternative to thats that is that somebody's got to go to, you know, 20 people and wow. say, i are sorry, you don't have a job now. You're fired. You're laid off. And that was a very big thing. One of the things Hannah and Barbera were both very proud of was how much work they gave how many people. And if you think of, I mean, uh, some of their shows, obviously we all can name shows we didn't like. Mm-hmm. And 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 what I'm about to say doesn't change the fact that those shows weren't wonderful. But you you do consider the fact that some of those shows put kids through college, paid for braces, mm-hmm. paid for medical expenses.
1: Yeah. Um, and regardless of how you uh, how you know the audience at large may have thought of a show, yeah. there was an audience for yeah. all of them, and yeah. they made people happy. I meet people who think Hong Kong Fu was the greatest cartoon ever done. He's number one super guy. Yeah. yeah
2: well, you know, and it, it wasn't a show that. But I was the wrong age when it went on the air for that. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I, it was a show I, I actually kind of liked a bit. You, 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 sometimes have affection for these shows for mm-hmm. odd reasons. I was in the halls at Hanna Barbera, and Scatman Crothers, who was the voice of Hong Kong Fui, yeah. was always in the halls singing and dancing and telling jokes. He was a you couldn't dislike this man. You know, if he was in the Trump administration. And <laughs> uh, and so I have a, t- a tough time hating Hong Kong Fooey because I love hearing that guy's voice. I just – it's affectionate. The same way Scrappy do. You, Scrappy was my friend Lenny Weinrib. Yeah. And I think yeah. of Lenny when I watch those episodes. And Lenny was a great guy. I loved Lenny. And he was just a funny man who did lovely things for people. And um, and he was and, – and what was wrong with that show was not his fault. Mm-hmm. He came in, he did his job very well. All those guys did the the building was brimming with talented great people and and I would go to work there at one point. They asked me to share my office with someone else, and i didn't really want to, but I said oh who is who am I going to get and they said, "Oh uh this old guy's coming in to work for us It so was somebody who didn't really it was like an office manager who didn't really know uh his name is uh Fred Avery, and I went Tex Avery? <laughs> and, and they said,
0: yeah, yeah, you know him? Some office guy. You yeah, know him. Yeah, yeah. You know him. Yeah. Uh, um, was, did your was, head turn into a wolf I, and I, you started I, slapping I, the I, table So you I, found I, out?
2: My eyeballs went, you know, oh, yeah. 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 God. <laughs> you, you want to hear a Tex Avery story at Hanna-Barbera? Yes. Please. please. I was sharing this office with Tex. And I was only coming in like two or three days a week because at the same time I was ro- surrendering Richie Rich and some of these other stuff, I was working for Sid and Marty Croft full-time, or later I was working on That's Incredible full-time, mm-hmm. and I was also still writing four comic books a month. So I'd come in two days a week, and they'd given me a really good office. And it was a great office because it was right in the center and the front. I should not have had this good an office. It was right in the front of every place, and if you came out of the recording studio, you had to pass my door. So... We'd be in there plotting against management. The writers and I would all be sitting there talking about, you know, how to, how to. Uh,
1: let's get an elephant.
2: That's right. Yes, that's right. We we didn't get an elephant there. Uh, we got an undercover one at one point, but anyway. So, um. And Jonathan Winters would walk in. Oh, man. And he'd walk in looking for an audience. He was coming out of a Smurf Which session. one? Because were, weren't
1: there 40 different versions of that and, guy? And
2: I would say to him, <laughs> are you here to fix the plumbing? And he'd do 12 minutes on oh. the plumbing. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there interviewing Jonathan Winters playing straight for Jonathan, giving him, challenging him, trying to pin him. Amazing. Anyway, <laughs> that so, is. so, so a- now Tex Avery and I are sharing this office and and they come to me one day and they say, we're moving Tex to another office. Um, Chuck Couch is coming to work here. Chuck Couch was an old Disney story man. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that Hanna and Barbera did. They gave jobs to these old animators uh, who, who otherwise nobody would employ because Disney didn't need Chuck Couch anymore. Right. So Chuck... And rather than retire, he wanted to keep working, so he called Hannah, and Hannah said, okay, we'll put you on staff. So they were going to move Chuck in with Tex, which made sense, because they had their old buddies, and they were going to move him to this crummy office in the back. And uh, I thought, no, no, move me to the crummy office in the back. Keep them where they are. And I Went around and said, don't. I come in two days a week. You don't need – I don't need the office that badly. So I was moved to the crummy office in the back. Fine. And I'd always be over in the office with Tex and Chuck with all the other young guys. We were, I was a young guy then. Hearing about stories about the animation and things like that. The golden days of animation. It's Tex Avery for God's sake. It's Chuck Couch who had – you know, could say, yeah, Walt told me one day – you know. it's So I, I finished – I was finishing the season of Richie Rich and – the office manager comes to me and says, Mark, we need your office. Can you be out by such and such a date? We need, we need your office for somebody else. I said, sure. I said, they said, now make sure you take all your stuff home that, that's yours because on this date, we're bringing a new guy in is going to take your office and, and we can't have you leaving stuff there. I said, I will be out of that office. Anything you want that's, I leave in there, just throw away. And they said, fine. Because whatever what it is, we're going to throw it away. I said, fine. So I finished the show. I take home everything I want. I leave a few boxes of junk there that I don't need. And I go home. And I went to New York for two weeks. While I was gone in New York, somebody, the house manager says to a flunky there, go make sure everybody put everything out of his office. The guy goes, okay, he looks up in the phone directory and he goes to the office that's now Tex and chucks, because there's an old phone directory. It's got my oh, office. Oh, and no. he reports back to the office manager. There's tons of artwork and scripts and stories in there. You know, there's there's a ton of stuff. And the office manager goes, Oh geez, listen, box it up. Go get some credit boxes, box it up and just take it to Evan get find Evanier's phone uh, Address and take it to his house and dump it on his front steps. So they, this guy boxes up the to- the contents of Tex and Chuck's office one day after <laughs> after work, and he <laughs> takes it over and he leaves it on my front porch. Here, I don't know anything about this. The next morning, Tex Avery walks into his office, opens the door, goes in, and does a Tex Avery take. <laughs> Oh,
1: I would give money to see that.
2: Yeah. you know, I I imagine a little droodle, tiny Sergeant Droodle, droopy there. And Tex goes, you know, does six. And then Chuck walks in a few minutes later and he says, what happened, Tex? And Tex says, I think we've been fired. And all day people are running around (laughs) looking for Chuck and Tex. They've got scripts in the work. They're in the middle of stuff. And nobody can figure out where it is. The guy who did it was off that day. (laughs) Finally... Late in the day, or something, the guy calls in, and somebody says to him, "Do you know what happened to the stuff in Texas?" And Chuck's off. They put it together. They figure it out. They send another guy over to my house to take the boxes off the step and take them back. I don't anything about this at all. I'm in New York. Oh my God. all right <laughs> They so they take all the boxes back. So I get back a couple of days later. I know anything about this, and I get this call from Tex Avery, and he says, um, "Mark." Um, I've got a box of stuff. For you. I've got a box of your, your stuff. It's a box of comic books from DC. DC used to send me all the comics. And I said, why is it at hanna Barbera? They used to send those to my, my home. He says, I got them here. So I drive out to the studio the next day and there's an unopened box of comics from you from DC addressed to my home address. The guy had taken my mail <laughs> when well, he went back to take, <laughs> he'd taken my mail and they, and he actually, the mail, the, the, the mailman had not put the mail in the box. He'd left it on top of the box. So Tech Avery has my phone bill. <laughs> oh my God. And he has, and he has, has all these, you know, these, 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 you know, these
1: letters from my cousin and stuff like that. You know what, though? I bet that kid didn't get fired. Hannah and no. Barbera weren't going to fire a guy no. for something like he, that. He worked. Hard. It's
2: also a hilarious story. It's a, it's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> so, things like that happened around the office. All there was one of those stories
0: every day. Well, and it was a fun place to be. I'll tell you what. Let's take a little office break. And, uh, we're going to hear about some of the other great shows on the Max Fun Network. And when we come back, cause I don't think, I'm glad that we've uh, been hearing these stories. Cause I think this is a, this is a quicker fight than, yeah. than, uh, some might believe it to be. Uh, but we'll get to that, to the Flintstones versus Jetsons when we come back. Hi, everybody. I'm your oldest brother, Justin McElroy. I'm your middlest brother, Travis McElroy. And I'm your sweet baby brother, Griffin McElroy. Me and 3,000 of your closest friends just found your next podcast obsession. Serial. Okay, but like the second best podcast. I oh, f. Just listen to
2: my brother, my brother, and me on MaximumFun.org.
1: There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. You're on board. What do you say we, uh, we do all of this and put it into a
1: podcast? Yeah, okay. You think? All right. Uh, should we call it, like, I don't know, can I pet your dog? Sure. All right. Uh, what, do you, what do you say we put it on every Tuesday on Maximum Fun? Or on iTunes. Sounds What's good that? to me. Meeting's over.
0: And we're back. All right. All right. right. We got
1: to get, we got to get down to, to, to business here. I want to push back a little bit on, uh, earlier. I know you mentioned your affinity for the Jetsons. Yes. Um, and I wonder because I going into this, I'm not going to lie. My first thought was, Oh, it's the Flintstones. Right. Was the first thought that I had. And I wonder if you're shaking your head. I wonder if your, do you think that your joy in the Jetsons? Might be a little bit biased based on the fact that you got to see it in color. It was the first thing you saw. It was, you were at a point where you had gotten tired of the, the, uh, the Flintstones. Because I feel like the Jetsons, while a wonderful show, was built on the back of the Flintstones.
2: Well, everything at Hanna-Barbera was built on the back of the show before. I That's, mean, you know, very, very fair. Okay. Um, this is not a hill I would choose
1: to die on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a phrase that has come up a lot on this show lately, which <laughs> yeah. I think is great. We uh, need to just stay away from hills in I general. Know, I Why think. are we going to all these hills, you guys? Uh, I'll
2: tell you one of the, one of the things, and, and, and yeah, the, yes, I yes, I am biased. One of the other things I loved about the Jetsons, uh, I had a belief, and the Flintstones was kind of an exception to this, but not, fully, that the quality of a Hanna-Barbera show in the early days was, uh, in direct proportion to how much Dawes Butler was in it. Okay? Ah. I, I loved Dawes Butler. I loved him. I got it to be a close friend of his later and mm-hmm. I loved him as a person. But even before I ever met him, there was just something about any character voiced by him that attracted me. Uh, Yogi Bear, Huckleberry Hound, Mr. Jinx, Quickdraw, Snooper, Blabber, Augie Doggie. He was all those characters. He was, he was an amazing actor with a voice that uh, made up for the limited animation mm-hmm. the hanna barbera characters were very fleshed out and real in a vocal sense um you know obviously you know the the animation did not have a lot of personality or 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 uh wit to it mm-hmm. because these cartoons were being made for eleven dollars but um Dawes was an integral part of the Jetsons and I also just kind of had a crush on Judy Jetson from the minute Janet Waldo's voice. Oh, know, sure. In mouth, and, sure. And, and got to know Janet and I got to direct, I got to direct these people, you know, this is the thing. I, I directed Mel Blanc. Wow. I actually gave Holy Mel way. Blank a line reading on how, on what's up doc in a Bugs Bunny special thing. We what? Did. I actually had to tell him how to
1: read, but, but. I can't imagine a situation where I'd have to go, oh, no, Mel Blank, Bugs Bunny sounds like this. Yeah. I, mean,
2: I, had, I had to get him to, deli- we were redubbing a clip but I had to tell him to say it a little, a little slower, but, all but, right. but, but. For, for technical but, specifications, yes, I understand. Yeah. It was Mel Blank and it was Dawes Butler and I just, Didn't quite have the same uh, love for the for any Hanna Barbera show that didn't have Dawes in it. Okay, although I did like Top Cat a lot. I I, Top Cat I liked a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, The Flintstones struck struck me sometimes as a little talky, and and I I I don't dislike the Flintstones in any way. Uh, I wrote the comic book for a while. They're great characters. Um, but if you, if you have to make this little com, needless comparison between the Flintstones and the Jetsons. How dare would, you, Mark would, Evanier, would, refer would, to it as needless. I would, I yeah. would, I would vote for, I would vote for the Jetsons, you know. Slightly over over the over the Flintstones for, for the
0: Dawes Butler factor. Although he wasn't mm-hmm. Dawes Butler, he was always the he was whatever animal said it's living. Wasn't that him? That was usually Mel. That no, was Mel? Mel. Oh, Mel would do that as yeah, well because he do was that Barney. Well.
2: well, what happened? You know, when you did the shows, uh, and and actually uh, Dawes was Barney Rubble in a couple of episodes in the pilot. Also, yeah, no. Well, the pilot was Dawes did both voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was essentially doing the same. Uh, Gleason impression he did on the Honey Mousers cartoons for Warner Brothers. Um, but when they started doing, uh, the Flintstones, as with many Hanna-Barbera shows, they would do the first episode and they decided the voices weren't right and replace them. The, the first pilot, uh, they did the pilot with Dawes and, and June Foray mm-hmm. on the Flintstones called Flagstones. And then when they recorded the first Flintstones episode, they had, uh, um, uh, was it Hal Smith and, uh, uh, Bill Thompson? I think we're doing bar- Fred and Barney. Uh, uh, and they decided they weren't the right guys and they replaced them. Uh, and that happened Top Cat. A different guy was, was, was Top Cat in the original pilot, uh, first episode. They, they, um, uh, I, I liked these shows, but in the case, of the, so they would start with, they've got, uh, Alan Reed, uh, Mel Blanc um, Gene Vander Pyle and B. Ben as your core cast. So they're mm-hmm. already in this re- recording session. Mel Blanc could double, triple, quadruple. could be four or five other guys. Right. But they didn't want to give him too many large parts because they didn't want to have Mel Blanc talking to Mel Blanc. Mm-hmm. So they would bring in a Don Messick, a Dawes Butler occasionally, Hal Smith, Howie Morris. There's about 20 guys, Doug Young who would be supporting players in the, in the Flintstones episodes. And those guys would double and triple. And, and Don Messick was in an awful lot of them. Don right. Messick was maybe the most versatile voice guy who ever lived in terms of just having different numbers of voices. And, and he was, uh, uncanny with his ability to change voices. Don Messick could have a five, Part conversation with himself, and you wouldn't know it was one guy talking to himself. He he, he, <laughs> he he could he could switch faster than anybody who ever lived. He could overlap himself. He could interrupt himself. Uh, it was an amazing skill. Um, we used but, to,
0: we used to train to do that back in the mm-hmm, day of yeah. thrilling adventure hour.
2: There's, there's about a hundred anecdotes about where somebody was directing a cartoon and they said, hold on, we got to cut here. The guy doing Pete is all, is talking over the guy doing Sam and Don Mess would go, I'm doing both those parts.
0: <laughs> he, he, was he was overlapping
2: himself. Uh, and, um, uh, so the animals would be Mel. Or if Don was in the cartoon, it might be Don do a couple of them, or mm-hmm. Dawes, or whoever. But most, the most part, you know, the the you know the the birds that uh, Mel was really good at birds. You know, you, mm-hmm. he was Mel made a, had a whole career doing parrots on sitcoms. Anytime was there was a parrot on a TV series for twenty years, it was Mel Blank uh, doing the parrot. You know, it's like we got a parrot in the show. Call Mel Blank, uh, and so so he did he did almost all the birds, uh and he did you know he did Dino. Yeah. And he did, uh, except for the one episode where Dino spoke. Right. Um, that was, uh, Jerry Mann, another guy who was in a few mm-hmm. episodes. Uh, so you've got like, you've got your core actors and you've got your supporting players. And, uh, and I, I really like those. I like, I like the voices in them. but I just
1: like the shows with, with the Jetsons cast a little better. Okay. I think they were just funnier. Well, you know what? I, this is, I kind of love this because I know that, how you and I both like you said before we came in thinking well this is going to be the flintstones it's right. a, a a seminal show but you and I are coming from outs an outside perspective strictly as viewers so i love coming into this and getting and getting a perspective from no 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 this is this is from an insider this one i prefer this one and this one I will could very easily win at this moment because This is, from the inside, this is what that show was, it was like to be there when it was happening
0: for sure for sure and I, you, we both have reverence for both shows mm-hmm. and two of my favorite voiceover auditions of all time one was for spacely the other was for <laughs> not fred flintstone in a in a series but fred flintstone for a commercial for the columbus zoo wow so it's just like come down to the columbus zoo this weekend
1: uh we should uh we should drop our our because we both auditioned for i believe both mr spacely yeah, and i for is George. Just like
0: how many times you go Uh, here's what i
1: think we should do Mm -hmm.
0: i think that rather than coming up with criteria and then comparing them because uh mark Evanier has taken you've taken a pro jetson stance in a slight edge over the flintstones not saying anything bad about the flintstones i think this is more of a stress test where Mm -hmm. you and i will try to figure out is there an angle where the flintstones actually do edge out the Jetsons and are there enough of them for us to overall take a step back and say the Flintstones are actually the best over the Jetsons for this reason. Does that does that sound reasonable to both of you? That sounds great.
1: Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's mad now. He's leaving. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, my only thing uh, with the, the edge that I think that the Flintstones would have over the Jetsons is the, and I say it all the time, is the cultural impact of the Flintstones. Right. Um, it could be argued that it's the Jetsons being the first primetime color show for ABC was simply a matter of timing. Uh, the, the, the Had it been available two years prior, I imagine that the Flintstones would have been well, yeah, well, broadcasting color.
2: Yeah, they just, it was an advertiser driven thing, mm-hmm. I think at that point. And you know, and then, you know, a couple weeks later, everything was in color. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to talk about which show was more important, yeah, the Flintstones was more important. Um, it established the fact that you could do a show in prime time, an original mm-hmm. show in prime time. Uh, and animation doesn't, you know, fit in prime time exactly because the, the, the lead time required to do animation doesn't coincide with the lead time in a live action show. Mm-hmm. Right. On a live, if you, you know, today, if you get an order for a sitcom, and they order, they'll order, they order eight episodes, and if they like those, they'll order another six, and then they'll order another – you can't do mm-hmm. a cartoon show that way because the, you have so much lead time necessary right. that you kind of have to commit seasons ahead. One of the reasons that The Simpsons worked at all was that Fox was willing to say, okay, we'll buy a whole season at a time, and we'll air them regardless. When The Simpsons was a hit, a lot of shows were tried that didn't have the advantage of being able to do five episodes – um ahead and 10 more ahead and things like that right um i remember a couple times when they were doing all these prime shows i'd get a called in and they'd say we've got the first three episodes they they stink we don't know what to do about them and i'd say <laughs> you can't fix them they're, yeah. they're not fixable because because you know on uh, it, when they're doing a live action sitcom they can go down to the set and watch the rehearsals or they can watch that and they can say hey you know that Fonzie character is, is really good. Let's feature him more next week's episode. But on a cartoon show, by the time you see episode one, episode 19 is done. Mm-hmm. And you can't, and it's, it's like a train wreck. It's coming in no matter what. Um, there was a period in my life when they would call me in on Saturday morning shows and they'd say, the show's been in production. We're doing 13 of them. We're up, you know, and, and we, it's not working. Can you, come in and story edit and rewrite and such and I'd say, well, how many are already done? They'd say nine and I'd say, it's over. You can't, no, there's there has never been a cartoon show that got better during its first season. Right. Ever. Yeah. You can't name me a single show where it was lousy and then suddenly episode nine it became terrific. They're all huh. they're all pretty much the same because the people writing the first eight right. never saw a finished episode. By the time nine came through, they've already got 10, 11, 12, and 13 written mm-hmm. and um nobody can have a vision to course correct the way you know you you see primetime shows like you know, the odd couple they started doing them and they changed they got rid of the poker guys after about 8, eight 6 episodes mm-hmm. they went to doing the show in front of a live audience eventually so they kept fiddling with the show and changing it. you can't fiddle with a cartoon show mm-hmm. you can't even edit it differently because when you are editing a primetime live action show you have You know, a bunch of different cameras. You've got camera angles. You've got lots of footage, and you can cut away and do things. With if you have a you know a twenty-two minute cartoon, you've got twenty-two minutes of animation. There's no way to cut away to anything
1: really. Yeah. Now uh, you mentioned the uh, having the audience. The Flintstones, when it first aired, did it have was laugh track? The laugh track was in it. Was that done? Was that Simply sound effects dropped in, or was yeah, it we no, showed this no, to an no, audience? No, no, there
2: was sound effects dropped in. Mm-hmm. The, the premise of the Flintstones, people forget this, is that it was supposed to be a cartoon for adults. Mm-hmm. It did not air at seven thirty in the evening like kids shows did. It was on, I think at eight thirty, and then when they moved to nine at one point. Such, a, you know, before it, I think there was uh, the Hathaways with Jack Weston, and that mm-hmm. was a show for kids. It was about mm-hmm. a family of monkeys uh but the flintstones was supposed to appeal to an older audience and its sponsors were not toy companies its sponsors were cigarette uh cigarette right. company right and 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 uh um, one a day brand vitamins Things that kids don't say. I want to go, Mommy, buy me that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, aren't there oh, I used to
1: say that to my parents.
0: Cigarette commercials out there? Are there are
2: Flintstone cigarette commercials. Yeah, you go to YouTube and and, and and you can find Fred and Barney smoking. Please Ironically,
1: do right I now, wanted uh, Flintstone uh, I wanted Flintstone vitamins as a kid. And now as an adult, I want Flintstone cigarettes. Well,
0: you did crush them up and snort them.
1: <laughs> I'm
0: just going to do a quick bump of uh, Bam Bam before I go into school. Oh, man. Hashtag
2: bump of bam bam. George Carlin used to, when he toured, he would have Flintstone vitamins mm-hmm. because otherwise they would, you know, the, the people at the airport would search his, 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 uh, luggage and find pills and they'd go, what are these? Well, if they were in the shape of Barney, it was a little easier yeah. you know, <laughs> So, um, but the Flintstones went from being a show that was supposed to be a a, a prime time situation comedy that just happened to be animated, mm-hmm. and they they originally sold it that way, Um and over the years it just went for a younger well. Sure, audience, they started younger
1: audience and, advertising with them as you know for yeah, Fruity Pebbles well, and you know they
2: they started and they you know and it went to it was Welch's mm-hmm. grape juice and yep. and it was it was eventually the sponsor, and so it was a it, it it and then it ended up on Saturday morning and it became a a. a a show for kids, Mm -hmm. which it kind of always was in a way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to what one area where the Flintstones definitely holds an edge is in their merchandising. And that comes from how many years they were on the air, but you've Mm -hmm. got the vitamins, you've got fruity pebbles. I, I would assume uh, in the seventies, when they had the Pebbles and Bam Bam show, where they had a band that they at least tried to release singles. If oh, they yeah. didn't yeah. release singles, Hanna so Barbera
2: Records had, would put out, put out Bar- Pebbles. Yeah, there was a period where every every show on Saturday morning had to have a band. I
0: I remember as a kid. Well, yeah, everybody after the
2: Archies, uh, especially. right? Yeah,
0: the Archies were the the yeah. progenitors of the the teen band. But uh, I remember as a kid. I did not have the Jetson's version of this, but I had the story, the Flintstones storybooks that came with a cassette and the cassette would tell you when to turn the page and yeah. it was like Fred skins his knee. It was a, a, a smaller story, but that I was inundated with that. Flintstones was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Not, and yet despite that, in my mind, the Flintstones and the Jetsons are are equal shows so the, yeah. the merchandise does come out of it the the, the more i think about it not not that i w- it's still hard to pick the jetsons over the flintstones as the best mm-hmm. but the fact that it continues to persist and it persisted beyond uh, the movie that came out in 1990 which i went and saw in the theater the with, jetsons movie yes with a uh, tiffany where they recast judy uh, as Tiffany because they wanted kids to come see sure. her. I'll, I'll
2: tell you what happened with that. Cause it was, yeah, please. Is, I, I
0: still run into people who are furious about that. Um, Janet Wall,
2: that that the, the Jetsons movie, first of all, interestingly, came about, you may remember that um, uh, Hanna-Barbera did a bunch of, of TV movies uh, including a Jetsons meet the Flintstones one, and mm-hmm. he did a right. good, bad, and Huckleberry Hound and a few others. Mm-hmm. It was a top cat one of things. The Jetsons movie was written as one of those low-budget TV movies. A fellow named Dennis Marks, lovely guy who's passed away, wrote this thing. And uh, somebody at that point at Barbera said, Hey, wait a minute. Maybe we could use this as the basis for a feature. And Dennis, who was dying, he was furious that he wrote the thing for no money for the the cheap TV movie, and they made a big feature out of it. They got Universal interested in doing it, and uh, they recorded the track with Janet Waldo doing the full voice. And somebody at Universal said, we want Tiffany to do the songs in it. And Joe Barbera and Bill Hanna had no problem with that because – and this is something I never quite understood, and I actually had arguments with them. I, I, I argued with Bill and Joe a lot. It's one of the reasons I finally left the place. I was I was arguing too much with the guys whose names were on the building. <laughs> um, I was I thought it was awful when I went to say, "Hey there, it's Yogi Bear," and Yogi didn't when, had a different voice when he sang different guy did it and right. such. And they did that on a lot on their things. Uh, Henry Corden started off as Fred Flintstone being the singing voice for Alan Reed. Right. Because they didn't like the way Alan Reed sang. I much preferred Alan Reed. Because he wasn't like a singer. Henry
0: Corden was a yeah, singer. Yeah,
2: well, More a, a, singer. a little better than him. But the point was it was really – if the character changes voice, then all of a sudden you become conscious that it's not really the character. Uh, um, so – um they were fine with Tiffany doing the singing then. And at some point the story was that Tiffany's manager says she won't do it unless she also is is Judy because they want to prove she's an actress. Okay. I don't know how doing the voice of Judy Jetson prove you're an actress. Sure. But Universal <laughs> said uh, either we Tiffany does the voice of Judy or we don't make the movie. So and I heard Mr. Burberry tell this story two or three times. He had the, you know, people were angry at him. People, he would, people yelled at him over this and got very upset with him. How could you do that to Janet Waldo? How could you do that to Judy Jetson? And he essentially said it was either that or no movie. And that's a, a, and, and, you know, in show business, we make those compromises
1: occasionally. Mm
2: -hmm. And sometimes it works out okay. And I imagine
1: to those guys, it was one job or 150 jobs. And,
2: and then if you want to, now if you want to get, you know, too deep into the weeds on this, that movie was the last thing that um, Mel Blanc and George O'Hanlon did. George O'Hanlon had been retired. George O'Hanlon got to star in a major motion picture before he died, and he got to leave his widow, the money from that movie, and he got a big, a lovely farewell. I yeah. mean, you know, If Joe Barbera had said, no, we're not going to give in to this de- Tiffany's agent's demands – and the movie didn't happen, think of all the people who wouldn't have gotten work, including George O'Hanlon would have been dead by the time they made that Jetsons movie. It's a greater good. mm -hmm. And somebody else would have, so somebody else would have been George Jetson if they made it two years later. All right. So, I mean, you can, anyway. So, Don Messick, who we all know Don Messick was, Don Messick shortly, about six months before he died, he had a stroke. He had a terrible stroke, and he was in a recording session, and he retired. He actually went home from this recording session, and had his agent call Hanna-Barbera the next day and say, Don will never work again. Recast his roles. Find somebody else to play Scooby-Doo and such. And they had a party. I was invited to this. This is one of the, those wonderful moments when I can't believe that I grew up watching Hanna-Barbera cartoons and now I'm at this (laughs) moment of (laughs) Hanna-Barbera history. I was at Don Messick's retirement party and everybody who had ever done voices on, who was available, you know, I looked over and there's, there's, um, um, uh, Casey Kasem, and there's Frank Welker, and there's, uh, uh Janet Waldo, and there's all the, anybody they could get who'd ever work with Don was there. And they had, it was a, at this, it was at this Chinese restaurant, and Casey Kasem agreed to come only if they would let him pick the menu because Casey was a militant <laughs> vegan. Wow. And all of a sudden, we all got these, when they started bringing out the food, there's no meat there. And and some of us were like... S- and he 40- brought out his top 40 dishes right. and none of <laughs> them had meat in yes, them. <laughs> yes, And And he dedicated them all to a, to a teenager in Kansas City. So, you know, some of us were actually like, you know, going to the weird saying, can you slip me some chicken chow mein, for yeah. God's sake? Anyway, so Joe Barbera gets up at this... um and don messick is there he he could not talk he could make the scooby grunts and he and he and he would do that he would actually if you went up to we all went up to don and we said don we love you we were so sad that you're not going to be working anymore you were a great guy and we would hear back in the grunts of scooby not even words just just the scooby sounds wow. that indicated yes and no and thank you and things like that and it was, it was like we, we people were joyous and tearful at the same time yeah Joe Barbera got up and he took – he said, I want to take this opportunity while well, we got the whole voice community here to apologize to Janet Waldo. And he told the story of why they replaced her on the – and Janet got up and made this sweet speech forgiving him. And to this day, when I meet people who say, oh, I'm so mad at Joe Barbera for replacing the voice of Judy, I say, hey, Janet Waldo forgave him. You can forgive him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was a, it was a very touching moment because – and this is one of the reasons people love Joe Barbera. He ever so often would say to you, "I screwed up. I made a mistake." And he didn't say he made a mistake this time. He said, "Here's why I did it. Maybe it was a mistake, but we we would we would not have gotten the movie made if we hadn't made that compromise." And and none of us are in a position to say that's not so, right? Um, I felt that when I was at Hanna Barbera that there were an awful lot of those compromises made, and. And it wasn't that Joe and Bill were hungry for money. They had sold the studio and they were, and their, their goal was to keep the studio, the new owners from laying people off, to keep the studio open and to keep product going in. And, you know, this, doing Saturday morning shows was very seasonal. You'd finish, you'd start making the show in February or March. And then by, by, you know, October, they're laying people off. And suddenly a guy who's got a steady income has no work for four months. And they always keep trying to find a show to give, to keep the studio open and keep it functioning. And some of their worst shows were done on that basis. Um, uh, there was one show that, that everybody there hated. But, you know, you you say to the guy, how can you work on that show? And he says, my, my alternative is unemployment. I can't get on another, I can't get (laughs) on, I can't get another animation job for four months. I'll work on this show. And my kids will have braces. So, I mean, you can discount that. They don't even need them. It's a
0: job. Yeah. I just want to get my kids some braces. He's like, (laughs) Dad,
2: I don't need braces. (laughs) And and, and every so often one of those shows done for the wrong reasons turned out pretty good. Yeah. That that, that happened too. So anyway, that was the the, Don Messick's retirement party. I think he died about a month later. But it was a beautiful- But he went out with a blast. It was a beautiful evening of love and affection for this man who was essentially a spear carrier. I mean- Don was rarely the star of a show with actual dialogue. He was star mm-hmm. of Scooby, but obviously, you know, Scooby wasn't a, 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 Scooby was a sound effects job mostly for the most part. And it was a brilliant characterization. There's no kid alive who ever watched that show who didn't try to make Scooby sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and my God, the character has endured like nothing else that we've ever seen that came out. It's probably the most popular thing that ever came out of Hanna-Barbera. And that was Don. But you know, Don was usually guy number five. He was the supporting guy. He mm-hmm. was, you know, you know, Dawes was Yogi, Don was Boo Boo, and the Ranger. You know, and he was great at what he did. And I, I worked with Don a few times, and I just I couldn't get over the fact that it's Don Messick in the booth, and you know, just as it was Dawes Butler in the booth, and and you know, uh, you know, we're doing this uh, right after June Foray passed away. I couldn't believe that I. Was working with June Foray and directing June Foray and writing stuff for June Ferre and knowing June Ferre, because I remember being a kid watching those cartoons and listening to Stan Freeberg records. I was so proud when I figured out that the lady on the Stan Freeberg records was the same person who was doing Rocky the Flying Squirrel. I did not know that June Foray did the Stan Freeberg records. She was on most of his records, yeah. Yeah. She was, she was on, uh, right behind you, there's a, an autographed copy of United States of America that Freeburg gave me. Yeah. And she's on, she's the lady at the end who yells <laughs> about being from the Daughters of the American Revolution. I did not and know June that. For wow. A, I
1: and, heard tell of
2: uh, a Broadway musical version of this. There was um, going to be one, yes. And it, it no. never happened. And, Freeburg's autobiography tells the long sordid story of that. Oh, and wow. I, I, I helped. St- uh, I'll tell you one of those looking glass moment things. This is we're weighing way, way off the topic <laughs> here. But when I was a kid, I discovered Stan Freeburg records, and I loved them. I discovered them because Soupy Sales used to have Pookie and Hippie mime to them. And I loved those ra- I figured out they were records, and my father said, I think that's Stan Freeburg. So I went to a record shop who was on Westwood Boulevard in West LA, a big record shop, and I walked in and I said, I'm looking for Stan Freberg. I was like 10 or 11. And they said, uh, comedy records, aisle four, whatever it was. I went over and I found a bin of Stan Freberg records and I recognized some of the titles from Bitsupi had Dut So I bought a record called Face the Funnies because it had cartoon characters in the front of it. And I took it home and... They had credits on it, and there was the credits for Dawes Butler and June Foray. And I suddenly had like the Rosetta Stone to figure out, oh, that's what Dawes <laughs> Butler said. That must be Huckleberry Hound because he sounds like Huckleberry Hound. And I figured all, I had all of a sudden had names to go with these voices that were in my head. I went back the next week, and I bought Volume 1 of the United States of America. It was a whole series, and it pledged on it that there were going to be Volume 2 and 3 and mm-hmm. 4. So I went back the next week. And I said, is Volume 2 in yet? And they go, no. I went back the next week. Is Volume 2 in yet? No. Volume 2 yet? It went on and on. It didn't come out. It didn't come out. Little realizing that I would have to wait 34 years <laughs> and co-produce the record with Stan to get volume two. You co-produced <laughs> the record. there's more to that. Stan called me one day and said, can you meet me for lunch at Junior's Delicatessen? I want to talk to you about a project. And I went to Junior's Delicatessen. Which was over, you know, in West LA. And I, he, we sat there and he told me, I'm going to do, finally do volume two. Rhino Records is going to fund it. And I need some help. Could you help me cast the voice? Cause he had to, re- he had written it for, you know, Paul Fries, who was dead and for, mm-hmm. for all these people. And I, I'm the one who found Cory Burton to do the Paul Fries sound. Like I knew Cory and I helped cast the thing and I rewrote a few lines. There's about eight lines in the United States of America volume two that I wrote. And I was at the recording session. I couldn't believe I was at the recording session of Volume 2 up to 34 years. But here's the amazing thing. Junior's Delicatessen, I swear to you this is true, was built on the site of that record shop. Wow. We tore the record shop down and built Junior's Delicatessen. Hey. I was in, uh, sitting there in Junior's Delicatessen on the exact same piece of real estate where I bought United States of America Volume 1. Unbelievable. And here's another one of those connections, weird one connections – um, the very first time I ever saw my name in print was a letter I had published in Aquaman. You know, I, I, I had a, I wrote um. letters into the editors and comics <clears throat> and I bought, and I, and a man named George Cashton was the editor of Aquaman. And he picked my letter and printed it, and it, it was one of those life changing moments. I didn't get a nickel for it. It didn't. <laughs> it was. It wasn't like, oh my god, I'm going to be a professional writer. I got a letter in yeah. Aquaman. But I you're I like, st- look, my name I should be. I stood there. Books. I stood there in the drugstore saying, "I'm in a comic book. My name is in a comic book." Something I wrote is in a comic book, and that was kind of a life changing moment for me. And George Cashton was a guy in New York who worked for DC Comics, three thousand miles away. The last couple of years of his life, George Cashton, was in a rest home in Los Angeles, across the street from where I bought that comic book, next door to the record shop wow. where I.
1: Bought then United they later South became America. Juniors. My That's right. Yeah.
2: Somebody
0: put a plaque on that block yeah. immediately. Yeah. That's pretty. And amazing. now Juniors
1: is the. It's still there. Uh The restaurant's closed, it, but it, it is. It, it's not junior. A big sign that says available for filming. Right? No,
0: it's, no, no. It's it's
2: it's it's now called Lenny's Delicatessen. Yeah, Lenny's. I just now. drove past it. It's oh, a, it's, it's now. Yeah, a, yeah, an, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah, reopened. Yeah, yeah. Juniors closed and it became Lenny's. And it's better now. It's a great dolly, and uh, um, that was also, if, if anybody cares about that, that's also where Conor O'Brien recruited his writers. He would have to. He had a little de- table table little there when
0: he started out, and
2: he, that's where he met Andy Richter at,
0: in, in Junior's Delicatessen. Wow. <laughs> well, anyway. well, there you go. All right this is this is what it's all led to we're gonna we're, let's make a decision here
1: all right how do you want to oh, yeah, do this we have to, i forgot we're what are we talking about flintstones and jetsons flintstones and jetsons i don't this is uh, this is like uh yeah this is like our muppets episode where it's like it doesn't matter we just want to hear matter. stories yeah
0: we, we, we've we <laughs> gotten some amazing stories it's time to make our decision
1: it's okay time now mark how do you want to do it
0: i'm gonna uh, throw it wow. on your lap
1: throw it at me yeah um i think that we've we've discussed each of them in depth i think we've got some great stories about the jetsons we've got some great stories about the flintstones Mm -hmm. obviously you have a very personal connection to the jetsons um i think that uh culturally the as we've all said that culturally the um the flintstones have had much more of an impact um that I think could be counterweighted on the other side of this scale with the great personal stories about the Jetsons that we have heard. So with all things being equal, I will defer to our guest, Mark Evanier. And so will I. So this is, this is a so, big question. So you're putting this on me. We are yeah. putting this a hundred percent on you However, as a way to say thank you for Amazing stories. Yes. This is this is how this is how the
2: Trump administration
0: deals with problems. They they pick somebody and they dump it on him. You're also the new
1: director of communications. (laughs) You are our new scaramucci, please
0: call the New Yorker, but do it in a voice. Now to to be fair, whatever you say we are going to adhere to and we have your back a hundred percent. Okay. Also, but this is the struggle that we have. uh, is there are often times where we come to a decision and we have to pull ourselves out of it and say my favorite may not be the best. Uh, and our mm-hmm. classic example is Bill Murray being our favorite of the Ghostbusters, because anybody our age who, who, who is in comedy idolizes oh, Bill their, Murray. Their However, when Bill you Murray. look at who is the best Ghostbuster, it's clearly Egon Spegler. It's clearly Harold Ramis. So we had to separate the two. If you choose not to do that, we have your back if you choose to do that or come up with can, something can different. I, it's okay.
2: Can, can I can I weasel out of this by saying that I think the the Flintstones was more important historically to animation and to television and to Hanna Barbera, but I have more personal affection for the Jetsons.
0: You can say that, but are, but are we saying that the decision for this episode would be the Flintstones? Uh, I
2: would
1: say that. It's, it, it, ask me the exact question. This is literally the exact question in its entirety: Flintstones or Jetsons?
2: Well, I mean, it was, it, which, oh, one, which one, one comes? Which one comes first in alphabetical order? Is that the question,
1: Mark? We we did an episode where we <laughs> compared apples and oranges and had to pick one. There's nothing outside who, who, our purview. Who, who won? Apples. 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 Clear, right? Yeah. No. It makes total sense. No,
2: no. Okay. We got. We got to relitigate that one. <laughs> oh. Uh,
0: <laughs> Should have known that you were gonna be trouble. Should have known. Um,
2: um. If the answer is, I would say the Flintstones is more important. I say it's more historical. So and I would and when you when you pick the two things I would say that probably um oh, why am I doing this? Um I will say Jetsons.
1: All right. Because I'm just because I'm going to interpret the question as which one did you like better? I love that. <laughs> okay. And and now I really want to go watch this Jetsons movie with Tiffany's voice in it. Yeah. No, Uh, no, 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 you don't. No, No, I no, I do want, I do want to go and, and watch some, uh, some classic Jetsons now and knowing these stories about all these amazing people that made this. Um, so how, if you will, yeah allow me to wrap this up and say people of the world this was
0: never about the decision this was about trapping Mark Evanier in his home (laughs) and taking the bag off his head and having him tell incredible stories about the history of animation if you like the Flintstones like the Flintstones if you like the Jetsons like the Jetsons the Jetsons won so now for all time binding legally and non-legally across all known media and unknown in the universe and beyond in perpetuity the Jetsons are better than the Flintstones you can rap about pebbles all you want you can be a million strong and growing. It's fine. Yeah. The Jetsons win because they have a robot made. How cool is that? Rosie was only in two episodes of the first season, if I'm not mistaken. And then oh, she, she rose to prominence in the, she prominence was in of the 80s. It. She was, in she was around in the background, is what I'm saying. Oh, right. Now, you know where she is? She's in Chile. She ran off. <laughs> but the point is, <laughs> these two classic series, on its, on its 55th birthday, the answer is wow. – the Jetsons asked and answered. The future you don't like is it,
1: better than the past.
0: Get on a, get on a moving walkway and then realize that you live in the world of the Jetsons. You do not live in the stone age. Asked. And answered, thank you, Harrison, for your suggestion. But Mark Avenier, thank you for inviting us into your home and for talking tunes with us. Can I change my answer to Quick McGraw?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, you can, no, but you can change it to El Cabang. How's that? Oh, nice. Yeah, sure, there you go. Fine. Good. So, uh, tell everybody where they can find you. Is there anything particularly you want to plug or I have a website. I have a blog.
2: From me. me is me mm-hmm. my initials and everything I do is mentioned there eventually don't don't go to the site if you like Donald Trump you won't won't, won't
1: like me anymore <laughs> but there are some but, wonderful uh, stories on that website yeah, yes. yes
2: I am I am approaching twenty five thousand posts
1: wow uh, mazel and
2: tough. and uh, so you know if you read back they're all up there and this you have to find something there you like see what ha- what it is is I'm really good at things that pay no money. Oh yeah, so, uh, are, are we. so are we. We're you really know. good at yeah, it. We're podcasters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People ask me, you know, uh can you do this? And I say, does it pay? And they say no. And I said, Oh well, I can do it. That's fine. Oh, no, yeah. that sounds <laughs> great. <laughs> Con- convention panels and blogging and podcasts and things like that. I'm really I, I I'm not good at anything that that has a paycheck attached
0: to it. That's so, the problem. <laughs> so the answer is you can find Mark Evanier anywhere where people work yes. for free or his website. That's right. Newsfromme dot make is, sure this, there are two M's. Yeah,
2: that's right. This is this, this is the longest I've ever talked not about Jack Kirby. I think in my life.
0: I know. And you are forbidden contractually uh, for the Maximum Fun Network. We have to do a separate Jack Kirby episode. Believe me, his name is on our list. But this top. Flintstones versus Jetsons is settled. There's so many more out there and we want to hear from you. What are the things that you want us to take your flame wars, bring them to us and we'll douse them once and for all? You can reach us by email at wegotthispodcast at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash we got this podcast
1: or reach out to us on Twitter at we got this tweets or Check out the Maximum Fun subreddit for the flame war that Hal just mentioned. Thanks, as always, to our musicians Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman for our score and theme song, respectively. Thank you to producer Ken Plume who's in the room right now. Can you give us a couple claps
0: so that we know you're here? <coughs> in this, you you know we require applause from Ken yeah. Plume. I can't talk. No, no. We're, we're gonna edit that out. Do you remember him from the end of Laughing? yes he was so great yes uh but thank you to ken plume for for uh producing our show as always thanks to to researcher kate mcmanus who did a little rush job for us on this episode Mm -hmm. thank you to graphic designer uri kelman and qa engineer
1: jen alba and thank you of course to you our listeners you guys we got to sit in a room with mark Evanier and hear uh amazing cartoon stories thanks to you guys uh so Ooh, thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for continuing to listen to the show and for supporting us. Uh, for Hal Lublin, I'm Mark Gagliardi. And for Mark Gagliardi, I'm Hal Lublin. And don't worry, everybody. We, we got, got this. this. We got this. Maximumfun.org.
2: Comedy and culture. Artist owned.
1: Listener supported.